Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth that it declares, and we're grateful to know that we can see the Lord Jesus all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So, Father, I pray that you would be at work this morning, that we might see King Jesus in all of his glory. And Lord, I pray that we would be those who love him and worship him and joyfully live for his glory, his honor, and his praise. So, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to impact the people of God. We give our time to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Martin Luther, one of the most polarizing people in all of history, who in two days will celebrate on the 500th and 6th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Because October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. In less than four years, the Roman Catholic Church would declare him a heretic, and the Holy Roman Empire would condemn him as an outlaw. Now, for a person to be polarizing, there can be no neutral response to them. So you either love them or you hate them. And it's a result of their personality, their presence, and the things that they do and the things that they say. And for some, they know what they're doing and they know they're doing them for a purpose just to push the limits of their own gain. You maybe think of a few politicians who are doing that right now. But for others, they're really not trying to be divisive. Instead, it's the opposite. They want to do good and they want to be helpful. But as they're doing good, they're confronted on every side. So Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, trying to be helpful, raising awareness to what is absolutely wrong and wicked. And what is evil about the selling of indulgences and the thought that you could literally buy your way into heaven. John Tetzel declaring, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He's trying to do good. But the issue didn't stay local. Instead, it went viral because of Gutenberg's printing press enabled Luther's radical claim that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to spread like wildfire. And the result? Well, essentially, he divided the known world into those who absolutely loved him, applauded his clarity, courage, and conviction to declare the truth of God's word, or they hated him considered him a liar and a lunatic, and wanted him dead. And of course, the event only escalated to the point where in 1521, Luther was called to appear at the Diet of Worms before the Holy Roman Emperor, where he was put on trial and he was commanded to recant, which of course Luther didn't, declaring, here I stand. I can do no other. So the conflict escalated and intensified until Luther openly criticized the Roman Catholic Church, comparing them to Babylon and the Pope to the Antichrist. And the Roman Catholic Church condemned him a heretic and commanded that all of his works be burned publicly and that any follower of Martin Luther who owned, read, or published his works be excommunicated from the church. My point Martin Luther was one of the most polarizing people in all of history to such an extent that you either loved him or you hated him and you wanted him dead. Same will be true this morning with King David in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19. But more importantly, as we look forward, the same is true of King Jesus, the God-man who declared that salvation is only by faith in him, confirmed by his person and his work, so his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The most polarizing person to ever walk the earth is King Jesus. So the question we must ask ourselves is how do we respond to him? Are you a person who loves him? Or hates him? And does your life back up that profession? 
Meaning if you love him and delight in him, are you willing to serve him and to sacrifice for him and even to be persecuted for him? Because there will certainly be others who hate him and as a result hate you. Who is Jesus to you? Your beloved king or your hated king? Please know the answer will impact your soul for all eternity. Well, that's where we're going this morning. So with that thought in your mind, open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Page 241, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I do encourage you to have your Bible open, to have my outline right there in your Bible. Title this morning of my sermon is Our Beloved King, Three Points, Beloved King David, Hated King David, and Beloved King Jesus. 1 Samuel chapter 18, follow along as I read verses 1 to 5. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now grab a hold of the context. Because David just killed the Philistine Goliath and cut off his head. So he's talking to Saul who promised back in chapter 17 verse 25 that whoever kills the giant will be given riches. Saul's daughter as a wife and his father's house will be made free. So there is lots to talk about. But the focus is not on any of those details. But on the fact that Jonathan loves David. So A, loved by his brother. In fact, the, next, the text tells us that twice. If you look at verse 1, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Then again in verse 3, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that Jonathan and David are kindred spirits, which makes total sense, doesn't it? Because they both love the Lord and both are willing to serve the Lord and sacrifice their own lives for his name's sake. I mean, remember chapter 14, 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer take, take on the entire Philistine army, just the two of them, just Jonathan, just him and his armor bearer, with Jonathan saying, chapter 14, verse 6, let's go over to the uncircumcised Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will work for us because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And what happened? God provides a glorious victory through these two guys. But now he just conquered the entire Philistine army through one man, through David, providing salvation for all of Israel. So Jonathan loves David because David loves the Lord. And Jonathan loves the Lord. And no doubt Jonathan knows by now that David is the anointed king, which is why verse 3 says he made a covenant with David. He made a promise to David. And verse 4 says he stripped himself of his robe and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. I mean, what else could Jonathan have given to David? He gave him everything. Well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, you have to understand, Jonathan's the heir apparent to the throne. So if he's a worldly man like Saul, then he's worried about his own glory, honor, and fame. And David would be a total threat to his kingdom. But Jonathan's not a worldly man. Jonathan's a godly man. So he's not threatened by David at all. Because David has a heart after God's own heart. And Jonathan has a heart after God's own heart. So Jonathan's happy to renounce his kingdom if that's what the Lord ordained for David to be king over all of Israel. But Jonathan's not the only person who loves David. 
Instead, all the people love David. That's B, loved by his people. Follow along as I read verses 6 to 16. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, does that remind you of any other place in Scripture? How about Exodus 15? After God split the Red Sea and provided the glorious salvation of allowing people to walk through on dry ground while they utterly destroyed the Egyptian army, Exodus 15, 20 says, Then Miriam and all of the women went out with tambourines and dancing and singing. So the women rejoicing in God's great work of redemption, which is the same thing that's happening here. And yet, not everyone is rejoicing, are they? Look at verse 8. Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Now notice... Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Now, a few things to highlight. First, notice how the women's celebration results in Saul's jealousy. I want you to think about that for just a second. Because are the women really comparing Saul to David? I mean, are they really saying that David is 10 times better than Saul? No, they're rejoicing in the victory that God has provided. But Saul's not interested in God's glory. Instead, he's interested in his own glory. And in him getting more credit, certainly, than David. That's why he's jealous. And that's why he says, what more can he have but the kingdom? Now compare that to what we just saw with Jonathan, who joyfully gives up his entire kingdom because he loves God and he rejoices in the one true king. Second, notice how jealousy turns to anger and attempted murder. But how specifically does Saul try to kill David? Look at verse 10. Says Saul had a spear in his hand, and then verse 11 says Saul hurled the spear at David twice. Now, think with me who's the last person who had a spear in their hand? Goliath. Chapter 17, verse 45. Who's tall, has a spear. And tries to kill God's anointed king. But now we have Saul, who is tall, has a spear, and is actively trying to kill God's anointed king. It appears that the text is laboring to describe Saul as an uncircumcised Philistine, who is just like Goliath, and therefore a seed of the serpent, and an enemy of God. Last but not least, notice verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why was he afraid? Because the Lord was with him. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings. Why? Because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and all of Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. I want you to be crystal clear here. 
Why does David have success? Because the Lord was with him. So David doesn't earn God's affection because he had success. No, David has success because he loves the Lord and is happy to serve the Lord and is willing to lay down his own life for God's glory, honor, and praise. And because he loves God and the things of God, God is with him. And God grants him success in all that he does. But as a result... Saul's terrified, in fearful awe of David, and yet the people love him. You see the growing contrast. Verse 16 says, all of Israel and all of Judah loved David, so David is loved by his brother, loved by his people, and now as we'll see, see, he'll be loved by his bride. Follow along as I read verses 20 to 29. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Now, I didn't read the first time with his older daughter, Merib, but the motivation is the same. And it's certainly not to fulfill his promise from back in chapter 17, verse 25. But it's just a different strategy in order to kill him. What's the strategy? Verse 21, it's for Michael to be a snare and for the Philistines to be against David. How does that work? Well, let's continue on. Verse 22 says, And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation, meaning he has no ability whatsoever to pay the dowry price for a woman as well off as the king's daughter. Verse 24, and the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Again, notice the reason. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. Verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, before you react to the whole acquiring foreskins kind of situation, right? You need to understand the place and the time in which this whole event is taking place. Because the ancient Near Eastern world was a brutal place. And battle was obviously taking place all of the time. So it was customary to bring back appendages, right? So, so hands or feet or thumbs or even, apparently, foreskins, from the enemies you killed, just to prove that you conquered them. So similar to David killing Goliath, what does he do when he kills Goliath? Cuts off the head and he brings it to Saul. Now, I do believe there's a bit more going on here. And I think that because Psalm 118 verse 10 says, all the nations surrounded me and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off or I circumcised them. They surrounded me on every side, surrounded me like bees, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So the upshot, David's a man after God's own heart, who even though he's surrounded by enemies on every side, they're all around him. The Lord is with him. 
The Lord provides for him and the Lord protects him and empowers him to conquer God's enemies regardless of the situation or the circumstances. And he doesn't do so in a minimalistic way, but he conquers twice as many as Saul asked for. But again, what's Saul's consistent goal? It's to kill David. Now, as we transition, what's the main point of chapter 18? That despite Saul's best attempts, King David is loved by Jonathan, loved by the people, and loved by all of Judah, all of Israel, and loved by his bride. And clearly, the Lord's hand is upon him, and whatever he does, he has complete and total success. I mean, just look at how chapter 18 ends. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all Saul's servants, so that his name was highly esteemed. You could easily say that David had a name that was above every name. Number one, David is a beloved king, but he's also a hated king. Which, by the way, is why I started with Martin Luther, being one of the most polarizing people in all of history. Not because he was purposely trying to push the limits, but because he was trying to do good and trying to be helpful. David's the exact same way. He's doing whatever the Lord calls him to do, to be faithful and to fight the Lord's enemies. And as a result, he's loved by his brother, his people, and his bride, but he's also hated. And as we'll see, the conflict only escalates and intensifies. So if you would follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1. This is number 2, hated King David. Verse 1, and Saul spoke. Saul speaking, notice who he's speaking to. Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. So clearly the conflict escalates and intensifies because Saul is bringing in not only his son, Jonathan, but all of his servants to do what? To murder David. So number one, Saul's plot to kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my brother, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Verse 4, and Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, listen to what Jonathan says to his father. Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? I just pause for a moment. Do you see how Jonathan is not just speaking to Saul, but that he's helping us think rightly about this entire situation? Because David is completely innocent. He's without sin. All he did was trust the Lord, sacrifice his life, and kill the enemy of God. And as we know from chapter 17, the whole point was so that all the earth might know that there's a God and that he's a God who saves. So ultimately, the Lord worked this glorious salvation, which was a tremendous blessing, not only for Israel, but for Saul himself. Because Saul was the guy on the hook to fight the Philistine death machine, the wrath from Gath and the nine-foot-tall Tower of Terror, all by himself. That's why Jonathan argues, Saul, you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now the glory of Jonathan's argument is that Saul's plot is temporarily put on hold. Look at verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. Look again at that. Saul swore, 
As the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. What a liar. Because we're not going much further and he's just going to have attempted murder after attempted murder. He's a liar. Just like his father. The devil. Who was a liar from the beginning. Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. Verse 8, and there was war again. Oh no, here we go. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them, struck them with a great blow. So they fled before him, which means that the Lord is with David, which means David is successful, which means that people are going to love David all the more, which means Saul is going to hate David all the more and want him dead all the more. Here it is, verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in the house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Now you must be wondering, why in the world is David continue to go back in the room? What's wrong with him? Why would you keep going back into a room with Saul when he has a spear, when all he ever seems to do with that spear is constantly throw it at your head? I'm thinking I wouldn't go in there. How should we think about this? Well, I think we should think about Saul very much like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Do you remember how Pharaoh constantly went back and forth, willing to let God's people go, then not willing to let them go, and how he hardened his own heart at times, and how God hardened his heart? I think Saul's the same. So David's thinking, at least here, that Saul's not maliciously trying to murder me, but that he's just not doing very well, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. So David's trying to be helpful, trying to love him and soothe him. And yet the hatred continues. And the murder attempts increase. B, attempted murder by messengers. Look at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Verse 13, Michael took an image, in other words, an idol, and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image or the idol was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now you have to catch the irony here. Because if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceived the woman, Eve in the garden of Eden. But all the way through scripture, there's this glorious reversal that is taking place where God uses these wonderful women to flip things on their head. For example, the midwives in Exodus chapter 1, who lied to Pharaoh in order to preserve the life of Moses. Or Jael, who lied to the wicked Sisera, Judges chapter 5, in order to deliver the people of God, including driving a tent peg through his temple, crushing his head. Or here, Michael is clearly lying to Saul. In fact, he says to her, verse 17, why have you deceived me? So this wonderful, glorious woman, Michael, lying to the seed of the serpent Saul in order to do what? In order to protect and preserve and save the anointed king of Israel, David. Yet David's clearly not as innocent as he would appear having false idols in his house, already anticipating the true and better David. 
the Lord Jesus. But by this point, Saul's already tried to kill David six different times. Three times with a spear, twice by the hands of the Philistines, and once by sending messengers to his house. Before we press on, let me ask you this question. Who are the people helping David? Jonathan and Michael. And who are they specifically? They're Saul's kids. So here's a question to consider. Are they doing what is right? Absolutely. Absolutely, they're doing what is right. So what should that tell us? What should that tell us as parents? It should tell us to not seek our own kingdom and to not try and convince our kids to be all about our family, our kingdom, and our glory. Because to do so is to promote the wrong kingdom. But instead, we should raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, calling them to obey God as we obey God and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that when we do all these things, we'll take care of themselves. Matthew 6, 33. It also helps us to think about our parents. Because if our parents aren't seeking the Lord, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then we need to go a different direction. Honor them, love them, and yet we need to worship the king, which will often set us at odds with our family members. So direct application, love God's king and encourage your family members to love God's king. Which brings us to see attempted murder by even more messengers. Because Saul just won't stop. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. What does Saul do? Then Saul sent messengers to take David, meaning to kill David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied and Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. So three times in a row, Saul sends messengers, messengers in verse 20, messengers in verse 21, and even more messengers in verse 21. Then Saul goes himself in verse 22. Why? Because he absolutely hates God's anointed king and desperately wants him dead. But you also have to see they're completely unsuccessful. Now, is this some impenetrable castle that we're talking about here? With a moat and a drawbridge and a big mighty dragon? No, this is Samuel's headquarters where he apparently trains unarmed prophets. Which is why every time the messengers come to kill David, God protects him, impacts the messengers, and they start proclaiming the word of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? That those who hate God's king and seek to kill him end up proclaiming the truth of God's word. Which I have to believe must include the reality that every knee is bowing. And every tongue is confessing. Even Saul's tongue confessing. That David truly is the anointed king of Israel to the glory of God the Father. Let me ask you, what have we seen in chapters 18 and 19? 
Haven't we seen King David as an unbelievably polarizing figure whose life and actions, battles, and victories have caused some to absolutely love him and live for his glory? Willing to even lay down their lives for him, making covenants, giving up kingdoms, pleading on his behalf, and joyfully being persecuted so that his name might be praised and his kingdom advanced and exalted. All in the midst of others who absolutely hate him. Stopping at nothing and desperately want him dead. Wouldn't that be an accurate assessment of what we've just seen? But we've also seen that David's not going to be the ultimate king because he's already got household idols, which are false gods. And by 2 Samuel 11, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, he's going to do what? He's going to send Uriah out to battle so he might fall at the hands of his enemies, making him very Saul-like in his behavior. So we can't possibly look to King David. Instead, we must look forward to the true and better David. Number three, our beloved King Jesus, who was clearly loved by some, but hated by others. I mean, if you would, go ahead and flip forward with me to Mark chapter 1. Let me just show you how this plays out for King Jesus. Mark chapter 1, page 836, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Remember how I told you that people are polarizing as a result of their personality, their presence, and the things that they do and the things that they say. Well, just look at what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying as soon as he walks on the scene. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's no way around the fact that Jesus declares himself to be God's one true anointed eternal king. And just look at what he does in the first few chapters of Mark. Chapter 1 verse 21. He walks into a local synagogue and he starts teaching with all authority. Chapter 1 verse 23. He rebukes a man with an unclean spirit during the service. Casts out the demon. Chapter 1, verse 34, he heals many who are sick, loving and kind, trying to be helpful and do good. Chapter 1, verse 40, he cleanses a leper. Chapter 2, verse 11, he tells a paralytic to take up his bed and walk. More importantly, chapter 2, verse 9, he tells the same man that his sins are forgiven. Then if that wasn't enough, chapter 3, verse 5, he tells a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath to stretch it out so it might be restored. What's the result of all these wonderful, glorious, gracious, loving and kind things that Jesus does? How do some of the people respond to him? Chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out. Immediately held counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy him. How to kill him. So already in the first three chapters of Mark, you've got some who absolutely love Jesus. In fact, chapter 1 verse 45 tells us he could no longer walk in public because everyone from every quarter, every town and every city was coming to him. Because they loved him. Because he did such good, wonderful, glorious things. But already the Pharisees hate him. And they're seeking to kill him, which goes on, by the way, for the rest of the gospel, with Jesus slipping away time after time, evading and eluding them. Why? John 7, verse 30 says, because his hour had not yet come. Now, does his hour ever come? I mean, do they ever catch him and kill him? Well, I don't think I would put it that way. Instead, Jesus willingly lays down his life. So that others by faith in him might have life. Don't you see? This is what makes Jesus the most polarizing person who ever walked the earth. 
Because Jesus declares, John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and I own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have the authority to lay my life down. I am the son of God. I am the one true king. I am the Messiah. I am the savior. I have all authority to lay down my life. And I have the authority to take it up again. This I received from my father. Now, why does that matter? Well, because Jesus also said that whosoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. And because of that, Jesus is the most polarizing person to ever walk the earth. He has all authority. He offers salvation. All you have to do is take him at his word and believe him, accept him, and love him. But if you're going to take him as your savior, then he's also going to be your Lord. And he has all authority to command you on how to live. Hence the tension. You either love him or you hate him. Let me ask you this question. Where are you at this morning? Are you with King Jesus? Or are you against King Jesus? Do you love him? Or do you hate him? Please understand, there is no middle ground when it comes to King Jesus. There is no fence sitting with King Jesus. If you're on the fence, then you're against him. Because the fence is located in enemy territory. You might say, by what authority do you say that? Well, because Jesus says that. To love him is to believe in him, is to follow him, is to obey him, is to serve him, is to sacrifice for him, is to live for his glory, honor, and praise. I mean, just think about Jonathan. What did Jonathan do when he sided with King David? He made a covenant. He made a promise. And then he left his father's kingdom. He took off his robe and his sword and his bow and his belt. He took it all off. And he placed it at the feet of King Jesus. All that I have is yours, anointed king. You're the king. I'm all in. Nothing would I withhold from you. Don't you see that's exactly what King Jesus requires of all those who love him. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Notice the priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Yeah, you know, maybe my first, my kingdom first. No. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a person's enemies may even be the people in their own household. Because whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, that's the person who finds it. And they find it for all eternity. Where do you stand this morning? Are you with Jesus? Or are you against Jesus? Oh, I'm praying and pleading that you would repent of your high treason against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and set your allegiance with Jesus once and for all. 
Stop rejecting him. Stop trying to play the fence game where you're not declaring all-out war against him. You're, you're not that bold, but you're also not wholeheartedly giving your life to him, serving him and sacrificing for him or living all in for his glory. I plead with you, no half-hearted obedience to King Jesus. Come to Christ. Worship Him, the one true, anointed, eternal King, now and forevermore. I also want to say this to you and to all those who believe in Jesus. There is certainly a cost to pay when you come to Jesus. You have to count the cost. Why is that? Well, I already told you, King Jesus is the most polarizing person to ever walk the earth. So if you set your allegiance with King Jesus, then you're necessarily setting yourself against all those who hate King Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? John 15, 20, that if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. If they persecuted me, which they did, then they're going to persecute you also. Why is that? Jesus explains, because we're not of this world. If we were of the world, the world would love us. But Jesus saved us out of the world. And therefore the world hates us. What exactly does that look like? Well, we get pictures of it back in 1 Samuel. I mean, do you realize 1 Samuel chapter 19, then Jonathan confronts Saul on his sin and his disobedience. He pleads with him to repent and to worship King David. How does that go for Jonathan? 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul turns the spear at his son. Now he's not just trying to kill King David. He's trying to kill Jonathan. What does it look like? Jesus commands us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He also commands us to love the lost and to faithfully share the gospel with them. And yet when we do that, how does it go for us? Well, I would suggest two possible outcomes. 2 Corinthians 5.2.15 says, we're either an aroma of life to those who are being saved, or we're an aroma of death to those who are perishing. So just like Jesus, we're either loved as those who have beautiful feet, faithfully declaring the bad news of sin and the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or we're despised and rejected, disgraced and hated because we're a stench of death to those who are already dead in their trespasses and sins in which they continue to choose to walk despite all of our loving, kind and gracious efforts. Dear believer, why am I telling you this? Because I'm appealing to you to continue to count the cost. Because Jesus is worth it. No matter what the cost, Jesus is better. So be faithful and proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. Because the most loving thing that you could ever do for another person is introduce them to Jesus. So I encourage you, continue to share and testify, appeal, and plead, and declare what is true, always starting with the bad news of sin, and always declaring that salvation is in Christ alone, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope of eternal life. But that's what it looks like to love Him, and obey Him, and serve Him, and sacrifice for Him. That's what it looks like to live for King Jesus, whose last words on earth were to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And that's why the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I desperately want you to know there is nothing more godly 
or more loving or more glorious than sharing the good news of the gospel and introducing people to the Lord Jesus so that they might be in heaven. Jesus is our beloved king. He's our savior and he's our Lord. And one day he will return. And Philippians 2.11 says that when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, I pray that every one of us will be there. We're all going to be there. But I pray that we're there willingly and joyfully on bended knee, worshiping King Jesus. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Yet, Lord, we recognize that it's challenging and convicting. Lord, I want to pray for any who are here this morning, who are on the fence when it comes to King Jesus. Lord, if there's any here who would be quick to say, I'm not against the Lord Jesus. And yet, in their heart of hearts, they know that they're also not all in when it comes to King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction. Lord, I pray that you would grant repentance. Lord, I pray that you would enable them to wholeheartedly put their faith in the Lord Jesus and live for his glory and his honor and his praise. Lord, I pray that we as a body would feel the cost. Lord, it is so easy to just be a nice person to just be kind and gracious. And certainly there's a place to just be kind and gracious. But Lord, help us to be those who are bold with the gospel, not afraid to declare that I'm with Jesus, that he's my king, that I love him, I delight in him, and I so desperately want you to know him. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a heart after God's own heart with a passion for your glory that causes us to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to know that you go with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that it's not our battle to win, it's the Lord's battle. But Lord, that's how you move through the faithful proclamation of the gospel so that others might repent and believe Love and live for King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you move us forward in that regard. For our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.